Today from the Global Lane, Chileans elect a young Marxist as president. A worrisome trend for Latin America? It is a complete fundamental transformation of this hemisphere and a deep, aggressive hostility towards the United States. One year later, uncovering the truth about January 6th. And why are the people, the two million people that were there being castigated and marginalized as being domestic terrorists? Demanding price transparency, disclosing the cost of hospital care. The reason why hospitals are continuing to hide their prices is because they don't want America to know that they're being price gouged. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. While people around the world prepared for Christmas, voters in Chile elected a new president. 35-year-old Marxist Gabriel Boric will become the youngest president in the world. Some people believe he's an anti-Semite for calling Israel a, quote, genocidal and murderous state. We're here to discuss what this may mean for Israel, Latin America, and the United States is Center for Security Policy President Frank Gaffney. Frank, it's always good to have you with us. Venezuela has Marxist dictator Nicolas Maduro. Last summer, Peru elected pre- uh, trade unionist Marxist Pedro Castillo. And now Chile with Gabriel Boric. Your thoughts? Unfortunately, this is a trend, as you say, that uh, is likely to continue in this new year. Um, and that is because the forces that have helped bring about um, essentially communist takeovers albeit via elections initially in these various countries, uh, is almost certainly going to be replicated in Colombia and Brazil in the course of the next few months. And were that to happen, you would essentially have the entirety of Latin America in the hands of not just leftists, not just socialists, but really uh, radicals and communists in quite a number of cases, pursuing not only in their own right agendas that are, well, inimical to the freedom and, and prosperity of their own people, but very much at odds with our interests. But they'll be doing it in conjunction with uh, an organization called the Forum of San Paulo, which is kind of a communist international uh, of our time, dominated by the Chinese communists, um, further enabled and supported by some of its allies, notably Russia and Iran. Uh, and the agenda of this form of Sao Paulo is, is very straightforward. It is a complete and fundamental transformation, as Barack Obama likes to say, of this hemisphere and a deep and I think aggressive hostility towards the United States. So I think you're gonna see drug trafficking greatly intensified. I think you're gonna see destabilization of the hemisphere to the benefit of the communist Chinese and their friends. And not least, you're going to see a further uptick of the kind of surging flow of illegal immigration into this country, all of which is gonna be very problematic for us as I say, as well as the rest of the world. We know he was an activist who 10 years ago led student takeovers of college campuses demanding free tuition. Many of the policies he's advocating sound like Bernie Sanders. So what else can you tell us about Boric? Well, I I think he is a young man on the make. He has definitely got credentials as a radical uh, communist organizer. And I feel quite certain that 
in power in Chile with the involvement of uh, the Chinese Communist Party and probably others, again, hostile to us, um, that he will take that country uh, in the direction that uh, Allende, the uh, former communist president, uh, was trying to take it uh, until, fortunately, he was stopped by Pinochet with our help. Boric received more votes than any presidential candidate in Chilean history. And you mentioned the days of Salvador Allende. Well, this time it's the Chinese influence, not the USSR or Cuba. So how did that happen? Well, I think one can't rule out the possibility that uh, there was some fraud uh, that was at work. But I think that they were successful, the communists, in characterizing the opposition as uh, a Pinochetist type of right-wing extremist. I don't think he was that, but that's nonetheless the, the message that was conveyed. And as a result of that message being conveyed, I think you saw um, large numbers of people opting for free stuff, as uh, is the great temptation of the communists. Earlier, I mentioned a comment he made about Israel during a TV news interview during the campaign, and he called the country a, quote, murderous and genocidal state. Does that make Barik an anti-Semite? Well, it makes him an anti-Zionist. I think that's uh, fair. Um, and usually that is a sort of a false flag for anti-Semitism as well. Uh, I would hope that he would not act on such sentiments, but again, it is part and parcel of, you know, on the one hand, the atheism of the communists, and on the other, the native hostility to Israel and Jews more generally that uh, often is a, you know, very foundational organizing principle of the communists. And uh, so whether he acts on it or not remains to be seen. Whether he is imbued with some of those tendencies, I, I'd be surprised if he were not. Finally, Frank, Barik takes office in March. So how should the United States respond? I believe that we need uh, what we've called a Monroe Initiative, um, hearkening back to the Monroe Doctrine of James Monroe, one of our founders, uh, who recognized that having uh, hostile powers from outside of our hemisphere colonizing it is not consistent with our interests or that of the hemisphere more generally. So uh, we have a hemispheric security project at the Center for Security Policy, which is working in coalition with others to try to advocate for such a clear-eyed stance that would most immediately align ourselves with and try to help the forces of freedom in Colombia and Brazil, the two countries that are uh, next in line, as I said, for um, a communist assault, but also to try to work with friends and allies. Uh, but we need to be acting on the principle that what happens in our hemisphere is of vital interest to our country. It's not just our backyard, I would argue it's our front yard. And to the extent that it is occupied territory in the hands of enemies of this nation, whether they're within the hemisphere or outside working inside it now, um, is very detrimental to the national security interests, uh, to the well-being of the American people and ultimately their safety.
we have to operate on that premise. Okay, Frank Gaffney, president of the Center for Security Policy. Thank you for sharing your time and insights, Frank. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Here on the home front, one year after the January 6th riot, the Capitol Police Union issues a troubling statement. The union warns they're short-staffed by about 400 officers, and the Capitol building is not secure enough to prevent future attacks. House Republicans accuse Democrats of focusing more on attacking former President Donald Trump than resolving security failures at the U.S. Capitol. So will Congress ever arrive at the truth? Will we ever come to know what actually happened on that day? Our next guest was at the Capitol filming on January 6th, documenting the events as they unfolded. Film producer Nina May is with Renaissance Women's Productions. So, Nina, one year later, more than 700 people have been arrested, most charged with misdemeanors for entering the Capitol building illegally. But you believe many were actually waved in by Capitol Police. Tell me what you witnessed about that. Well, <clears throat> when we left the White House, first we started at Capitol Hill. It's a 55-minute walk to the White House. We wanted to hear the president speak. Could barely hear him speak. We thought we heard him say he's going to be speaking at the Capitol. A lot of people thought they heard him say that. So we left so we could get a front row seat for wherever he was going to be speaking at the Capitol. But the thing that really got me was that on the steps of the Senate, on the Senate side of the Capitol, you had all these Capitol Hill police just kind of hanging out, standing around, talking to the um, Trump people, getting selfies made. And I'm thinking, if, if all this violence is happening inside the Capitol at this minute, why aren't these Capitol Hill police doing something? Why aren't they putting up barriers or getting people off the grounds. And this was the thing that, that again, the spidey senses would up on this. This is now at 2.30. Everything was supposed to have happened. There was not one siren. I did not see one ambulance. I didn't see a fire truck. I didn't see EMP, nothing. It was silent. In fact, I stood in the, in the intersection of Connecticut and First, and I did a 360 there and no police to stop me no one was saying get out of the street get what are you doing in there there was no one it was like a ghost town so why weren't all of dc police converging on the capital if all this horrible stuff was supposed to be happening why weren't they everywhere why weren't they getting people you know away if they thought there were gunfires and 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 gunshots and everything it it just something just doesn't ring true and one of our points is there's 14,000 hours of security tape video that's not been released. And we volunteer our time to go through it and to do time-stamped um, uh, parallels between what we saw and what they say happened and show the actual story about what happened. Why aren't they releasing the footage? Why isn't the, the um, communication between the sergeant of arms and Nancy Pelosi being released? There's so much that is not being um not being revealed to the public, and the big question is why. And some have been jailed on felony charges, accused of actually assaulting the police, but you believe there are others who have not been arrested, and they should be. People like well-known Antifa activist John Sullivan. He admitted he attended the rally that day disguised as a Trump supporter. Should he be charged? What did he do? Well, yeah, he's standing up there saying, burn the, you know, effort down. And isn't he the one that had the contract with CNN and CBS to get in there and take pictures. He signed the contract at 10 in the morning. So what did he think was going to be happening? And it's very suspicious that he happened to be at that spot where 
the man with the gun shot Ashley Babbitt happened to be there. That's a one in a million chance. That's what in the movie business you call the money shot. I mean, that's what you you die for the money shot. I mean, it's incredible. How did he get that? And and how did he get in? And you hear him on the tape saying, we did it. We did it. We did what? What did we do exactly? And how did he get in there? And then you've got all these other people that are in jail or being charged with something that were also in there with their cell phones. Why is he different than them? And there are allegations that all of this was a conspiracy led by the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers organizations. Revolver News compiled a video showing former Arizona Oath Keepers president Ray Epps encouraging protesters to breach the U.S. Capitol building. Take a look. Tomorrow, we need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. What? No! Oath Keepers militia founder Stuart Rhodes has also been accused of encouraging a Capitol building breach, yet he has not faced criminal charges. Nina, I'm sure you and others are asking if this was a right-wing militia conspiracy to attack the Capitol, why have these men not been arrested? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And why are the people, the two million people that were there being castigated and marginalized as being domestic terrorists when all they were, this is something a lot of people don't know. Most of those people, I say 95% of those people had come in the day before for a prayer march around the Capitol. Many conservatives believe the House January 6th Select Committee is politically motivated. Some equated to a show trial against political enemies. So how do we get at the truth, Nina? Well, here's what I, we, we think we should do is have a citizens commission and have a outside the Capitol um, show exactly what they're doing, the, the panel, and get real witnesses in there, people that were there at every corner of the building. Try and get shake loose that uh, the 14,000 hours of video that they are not letting anyone see. I know Tom Fitton and his judicial watch has been trying to you know, get them through the, the FOIA requests. Same thing with the um, sergeant of arms communication with, with Nancy Pelosi. They're not wanting to get to the bottom of the truth. They know what the truth is. They're trying to hide the facts. All right, stay tuned with congressional subpoenas issued and lawsuits filed. There's a lot more to come in this election year. Nina May of Renaissance Women's Productions, we're out of time. Thanks so much for being with us to share your observations. You bet. When you go shopping for groceries or to purchase clothes at a retail store, you'll usually see a price tag on the items. You'll know exactly how much you'll spend. But what about costs for health care? One year after new federal regulations were put in place requiring hospitals to disclose costs, many are still not sharing their pricing online. Well, here to set us straight on what is happening and why is Katie Talento. Ms. Talento is executive director of the Alliance for Healthcare Sharing Ministries. So, Katie, please tell us why many hospitals are still not sharing their pricing information. I thought the Biden administration had demanded transparency. Yes, both the Trump and the Biden administration have doubled down on these requirements. We were very relieved when the Biden administration took up the mantle um, left by the Trump administration. So the reason why hospitals aren't complying and are continuing to hide their prices is because they don't want America to know that they're being price gouged and, and, and ripped off. I mean, that's the real reason. And there are now tougher penalties against hospitals if they don't share the cost information. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, that's right. So perhaps the, the main flaw with the regulation that the Trump administration put out was that the penalties weren't stiff enough. They were only $300 a day of noncompliance. For a large hospital, that's, you know, Trump, Trump change. And so the, the Biden administration actually increased those penalties to as high as $2 million a year for a large hospital, which frankly, I still don't think is high enough given how um, rich these some of these hospitals are, especially the so-called nonprofit charity hospitals. They can be the biggest scam in town sometimes. But let me give you an example, Gary. At the University of Mississippi, which is complying in part with the price transparency rules. So we can see their prices. At that, just at that one hospital, depending on what plan you have, or if you have no plan at all, your colonoscopy could cost $1,500 if you have a Cigna plan. It could cost $2,100 if you have Aetna. And if you're a healthcare sharing ministry member and you're not insured, but you work with a ministry to help share your bills, that price would be $800 for you. So it's really important to healthcare sharing ministries to help their members steer to price transparent hospitals that will be more affordable because we want to make our charitable giving stretch as far as we can. That's really important. It's not just us. It's all Americans want cheaper prices and to get a better deal. Over a recent six-year period, healthcare costs doubled and many Americans cannot afford necessary healthcare. Some are opting for health sharing rather than health insurance to cut their medical costs. So tell us why health sharing is growing in popularity. Yeah, I mean, you've really hit on it. Premiums have gone up. Um, they've doubled, more than doubled in the past 10 years. Deductibles for employer-sponsored insurance have tripled in that same time. I mean, this is just not sustainable. And people who are you know, small business owners or um, people who 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 are 1099 gig economy workers, you know, they can't afford to get on the ACA exchanges and and buy a plan that maybe has a huge amount of cost sharing. Sometimes they can, you know, if they don't make as much money, they could get some subsidies from the government. But then they're going to find out that their health plan, maybe the network is too narrow, or maybe that deductible is ten thousand dollars. You know what? I want to do healthcare in a more human kind of way. We do education as Christian communities. I know that if you have a baby, that community is going to wrap around you and bring you a casserole every day for the next month, right? We're used to relying on each other. And so in healthcare, it should be no different. And so just like we do homeschool co-ops and we come together in education, we often want to come together as a community and share in each other's healthcare burdens. It's just a more human way of doing it. Does the president of the United States have the authority to mandate the private employers require vaccination or COVID testing of their employees? Well, that question is now before the U.S. Supreme Court. Two cases are to be decided. One is a challenge to Biden's shot mandate for businesses with over 100 employees. The other concerns a vaccination mandate for healthcare workers receiving federal Medicaid and Medicare funding. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration is the enforcer. This mandate means OSHA now has the potential to become an American-style Gestapo, relying on workplace snitches 
to alert the government of employer and employee mandate violations. Folks, the original intent of Congress when it created OSHA in 1970 was to police on-the-job hazards, to curtail workplace accidents. The Biden administration is now taking it to a new level with a COVID-19 vaccination and testing emergency temporary standard. OSHA has issued nine emergency temporary standards during its 50-year lifespan. Six have faced legal challenges. Courts have struck down five out of six. This one will likely be struck down as well. To me, the president's vaccine mandate is unconstitutional because it actually makes law. That's not the role of the executive branch of our government. On the federal level, only Congress can create our laws. Laws are enacted after they are debated and approved by the House and Senate and signed by the president. There was none of that here. Lower courts have already blocked the shot mandate from taking effect in 25 states. And that's good news because the order is already having a negative effect on the economy. The airlines canceled thousands of flights over Christmas and New Year's holidays. And it wasn't only because of weather or sick pilots. What they're not telling you is that some pilots and crew members have decided to quit their jobs rather than be forced to get the shot. And police, firefighters and nurses around the country have also quit their jobs or have threatened to quit because of the mandate. It comes when police departments and hospitals are already critically short-staffed. Folks, this mandate is abusive to American workers. The government has no authority to force you or anyone else to inject something into your body. It's a slippery slope. What's next? Forced abortions? Government-ordered euthanasia of terminally ill children and the elderly? That happens in places like Nazi Germany or Communist China, not the United States of America. The U.S. Supreme Court must maintain the integrity of the U.S. Constitution and limit the power of the executive branch of government. And whether it's smoking, drinking, overeating, taking illegal narcotics, abusing your body, only you not the government has the responsibility to protect your health. The American people must have the liberty to make their own health decisions, regardless of the consequences. My body, my choice. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.